one that wants, wants to, would you please take your copy of the Word of God? We're going to be looking at the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 5 and 6. We are in the midst of taking our time trying to get through this Sermon on the Mount, and we're especially going to take some extra time in this section of that that we know as the Beatitudes. And basically, that's going to be in verses 1 through 12, and then there's another section to the sermon. Uh, we've done verses 1 to 3, and today we're just looking at 1 to 4. Today we're looking at verses 5 and 6 in our text. But let me start this way to maybe get us thinking about where I would like us to be uh, in our thoughts when we get to this particular passage of 5 and 6. There are in this life opposites for most everything that exists. I remember Doc Gibson, every time I'd run into him, he wanted to tell me about opposites. He says there's light and dark and day and night, and, and he'd just run through a whole list of opposites. He said there's an opposite for everything. Now, I don't know if that's true in every situation, but there are opposites in this life. This is true in the area of our emotions as well. I had a great uncle by the name of uh, Fred Brum, and my uncle uh, was obviously a very old man when I was a little boy because he was my great uncle. And in most every situation, he was one of the most mild, unassuming men, very gentle in every way. But all that went out the window when he would sit down on Saturday night and his lazy boy to watch All-Star Wrestling. <laughs> when Uncle Fred was watching All-Star Wrestling, uh, he would actually be halfway across the floor with his face in the TV, come on, and then he would start to cuss in German, uh, which was nice because none of us kids knew German, but we kind of picked up on some things we weren't supposed to. But I said, boy, this is really not like Uncle Fred. And it was such an intense thing that he literally had dug the stuffing out of the arms on the chair uh, where he sat to watch All-Star Wrestling. Now, other than that, uh, him, him being worked up like that, every other day, even when he's out hoeing weeds, he was very peaceful uh, when he was not worked up. So there was real opposites going on there. I also had a relative, and I won't say his name, but I had a relative who once knew the Bible better than anybody that I had ever known. Uh, he knew uh, entire passages of Scripture by heart, and he didn't live a single word of it. And that's another opposite that is a problem, to know the Word of God but not to do it. He quoted, actually, uh, during some family dinners, he would quote uh, two or three chapters by memory. But once it was out of its mouth, it lost any kind of hold on him, any kind of grip on him. It was gone. You know, there must be a better reason in this world to know God's word than just to demonstrate that you're familiar with it or that you can quote it. I have known people who know less of God's word than most other people, but they're different in the sense that they put what they know into practice, and in that way, they know a whole lot more about the word of God than others who know more material. You can see it lived out right in front of you in their lives. And here is the bottom line for us. If we want to be blessed by God, we must get these two issues straightened out. Do you want to be an object of God's favor in your life? That's what this uh, sermon is asking us. Uh, then you are uh, in the right place this morning because we're going to be talking about that. Jesus says over and over in the beginning of this sermon, blessed, 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 and he goes on. 
And, and we get the idea that if I want to be blessed by God, this is what I have to be like. This is what I need to be. And I also want you to know that you can't be that way or I can't be that way if we don't know Jesus as our Savior. It's impossible. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you, you, Savior, you have everything you need to be able to be the kind of person that God blesses. The bottom line is this. Jesus is not going to say anything about blessed is the person who sins every day. Blessed is the person who ignores the word of God. He never says that. It's always the opposite of that. Blessed is somebody who obeys the word of God. Blessed is somebody who walks after God. And today we're going to see two of those things in the sermon as we just look at these two verses. And here's what they say. So Matthew 5, verse 5. The Lord is, imagine the Lord up on that mountainside, and he's teaching the people that are gathered, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people. He says to them, blessed are the gentle. Some of your texts might say, blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, that's not usually the way we think of people inheriting the earth. We usually think of people that are heads of nations, and they're warmongers, and they're tougher than everybody else, and they just subdue everyone, but that's not what Jesus said. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Then in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Satisfied with what? Satisfied with righteousness. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So I have to ask myself, and I'd like you to ask yourself, am I really the kind of a person that is living his or her life and I am thirsting for, I am hungry for the righteousness of God. Everybody knows what it's like to be hungry for food or thirsty for water. And, and that's what you're seeking out. I have to have some food. I have to have some water to drink. I've got to have that or I'm just going to die. Do we ever say that about God's word? Do I ever say I am so hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of God? I just can't hardly wait till the next time I get to spend some time in, in God's word to figure out what that righteousness is. Well, that's the challenge that Jesus is giving all these people on that hillside and because of the scripture is giving to us as well this morning. So we're just going to look at that first verse, verse 5. Blessed are the humble or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. So if you're following along in your bulletin, that first outline point, the Gentile believer is blessed. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's an oxymoron. The gentle believer is blessed in that he or she will inherit the earth one day future. Now, if you're a Gentile and you know Jesus, that would have fit. But the gentle believer is blessed in that he or she will inherit the earth one day future. You know what? I don't look at myself as anybody that's skilled in weaponry or hand-to-hand -hand combat. And usually when you're thinking about ruling something, you've got you to gotta take it over. You have to do things to win it. You have to do things to, to put your enemies in, in submission. But that's not anything about what this says. Those who are going to inherit the earth, when it's all said and done, when the earth has received the judgment that God is going to give it, the ones that are going to be left are those who are gentle, those who are humble. So the supreme superlative embodiment of everything good and perfect is Jesus Christ alone. And it's only right that we learn from Jesus these truths because he embodies it in a perfect way. Jesus was both gentle and humble, and he will also inherit the earth and be its king forever and ever and ever as he, uh, we look at the new earth. Jesus has no rival in terms of perfection, holiness, 
or righteousness. And what I think that the author is trying to say to us, as, as Matthew writes down the words of Jesus, is that you need to understand that there's a lot of things in the world that pretend to be perfection. They pretend that they are holiness. They pretend that they are righteousness. But Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. You can only be the gentle that God needs you to be and I need to be if we are doing that as a member of the family of Jesus Christ. Because he alone, not anyone else in the world, not the greatest teachers of the world, not the, re the religious leaders of the world, but only Jesus is perfect perfection, complete holiness and righteousness. He is the perfect model for us to imitate in this life. And that's going to mean something here in a minute as we look at what Jesus did. You might have an idea about what being gentle and humble means that isn't going to fit this model. And if it doesn't, then we need to make it fit. But Jesus was perfect in modeling this in his life. He showed God-given emotions. Jesus was a human being, 100%. And he's 100% God. He had emotions. He felt rejection. He felt people abandon him and neglect him. He felt people walk away from him and be angry with him. And he had emotions about that. He was sad at times. He was sad at the tomb of Lazarus, as we talked about that one time. He was sad there because people weren't believing who he said he was. Uh, they, they were there to watch him uh, raise Lazarus from the dead if he could, and they, they saw Jesus' tears, and they said, oh my, look how much he loved him. That's not why he was sad. He was sad at this unbelievable amount of unbelief that was all around him, who were not accepting him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And that text says he was, he was very sad. And there were times when Jesus was angry. Yeah, somebody who was gentle in the Lord can also at times be angry. He was also very happy at times. And there's times when Jesus rejoiced. There were times when Jesus was rejected. There were certainly times Jesus was annoyed at the fact that the people of God don't seem to be able to exhibit faith, but here comes some Gentile, and his faith is just blowing through the roof and blowing the roof off where the Jews are. And Jesus said, I haven't found this kind of faith in Israel. And he was annoyed with his own people. And Jesus was to the point. Now, when we get to Matthew 23, you'll see just how to the point Jesus can be about what he means. But he was also, in his character and his personhood, he was gentle. He was always loving. He was forgiving and still is. He was caring and still is. He was one who healed others. He was safe for people to be around, and he was humble. You see, emotions are not sin. The Bible doesn't say don't ever be angry. It says be angry and do not sin. Anger is an emotion. It's what you do with it that makes it either good or bad. We deal with anger by we forgiving, forgiving the people that we're angry at, and we do it very quickly. We keep short accounts with others. We don't let the sun go down on our wrath and thereby give a place or a room to the devil to work in our life. And Jesus Christ always took care of himself that way. Emotions are not sin. It's what you do with those emotions that can be sin and cause it to be a problem. Jesus was gentle and loving. 
Now, that's what the text tells us that he is. He's perfect. Uh, Does Jesus ever make a mistake? The Bible says no. If he made a mistake, if he ever sinned, if he ever didn't do the right thing, then Jesus Christ cannot be the Savior of the world. We needed a perfect sacrifice on that cross, and that's what Jesus was. So I would like you to keep that in mind. Jesus was the definition of all definitions of gentle. But what does that mean about some other areas of his life? And I want you to see that. And we're going to go to John chapter 2, if you would please. We're going to go to John chapter 2. And here is Jesus, who is humble or gentle. And this is what humble and gentle Jesus did in verse 14. John 2, 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, so it's a sort of a whip. And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He made a wreck of the place. And those who were selling the doves, he said to them, take these things away, stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written of him, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us that you have the authority to do these things? Then he talks about the destroying of his own temple and that he would raise it again in three days, speaking about his body. So we have a humble and gentle Jesus, but I want you to see that when something was wrong with the house of God where they worshiped, when they were making it a place of commerce commerce, instead of a place of worship, Jesus did something about it. And he did it in a big way. There was no no mistaking what Jesus was doing that day. Now, I don't know if, if he used that whip on people. I doubt it but he certainly would have used it on the sheep and the oxen to drive them out and drive them away. And the people were getting the idea. He's overturning their tables. There's money flying everywhere. Now you would look at Jesus and you'd say, boy, he's upset. And you'd be right. And he was upset. And people would look at that today and say, well, how can you be gentle if you're, if you're taking your whip and using it on these animals to get them out of the temple? And, and what do you mean gentle when you're throwing the tables in the air and money's going all over? They're hard-earned money. What about that? Well, friend, here's, here's the issue. Jesus was perfectly gentle. When a time came to stand up for his father and for what his father taught and what his father wanted this place of worship to be, He did something about it. Did he hate those people? No. All right, was his anger out of control? Never. Was he being uh, something that didn't look so gentle? Yes. And he couldn't have been gentle in that respect if he was going to get this job done. But he never sinned. So I want you to see that Jesus is a perfect example of being gentle, but he is also a man who when the job needs to be done, he gets the job done. And he takes care of his father's business. And that's what we need to be like as well. Uh, We're we're not gentle to the point of being pacifists in everything that happens in our life. There's sometimes we we need to step up and do something about righteousness. All right, so let's get back to us. Those who are gentle, Jesus said, will inherit the earth. The word gentle in the Greek text indicates someone who is not overly impressed by the sense of their own importance 
All right, that's where we can translate this word as somebody who is humble, somebody who is unassuming, somebody who is considerate of others. And it is someone who is, if you will, meek, meaning to have a proper appreciation of his or her position before God. And when you think about the position that Jesus had before God, and these people say, by what authority did you do this to all these people in the temple? (laughs) He could have very easily said, not just this is my father's temple, but this is my house. And I will not have this in my house. It isn't righteous. It isn't good. It isn't honoring to God. And out it goes. And by the way, that's what Jesus wants us to do with our own homes. If we have something in our own home that isn't righteous, it isn't good, then out it goes. It has no place where we live. Well, um, I would like to move on from that and look at Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 29, still speaking about the gentleness of Jesus. Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29. The Jesus who cleared the temple, who is preaching about gentleness, said this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, look at it, gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. One of the things we finally begin to learn about Jesus is he's not very compassionate with sin at all. But to those who want to seek him, he is very compassionate. He is very gentle. He is very loving. And he will take care of them. That's the same Jesus who cast these business people out of the temple where they should not have been. So I want to ask myself, you ask yourself, can I be gentle and still passionately stand for what is right? I think the answer is yes. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, had sinned before in his life and, and sinned even while he was an apostle. He's not Jesus. He's not perfect. But if we were to hold our life up against Paul when he was a Christian, we would say, wow, I am woefully short. And Paul looked at his life against Jesus Christ and said, Wow, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? He recognized his own sinfulness. But I want you to notice this man who cares about people in 1 Corinthians 5, loves people and loves the people of the church. He prays for them every day, the Bible said. Paul says, I have the burden of the churches on me every day. And the church in Corinth is not dealing with a sin in their midst. They're supposed to be dealing with it, but they're just turning their heads the other way. And they're saying, you know what? This sin just makes God's grace abound more and more. And Paul said, are you crazy? We don't sin so that sin will, so that grace might abound. We try not to sin. So there's, a, there's an immoral situation in the Corinthian church. And in chapter 5, here's what Paul says. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, in other words, the unsaved, that someone has his father's wife. So there's incest. There's an immoral relationship between a son and uh, his dad's wife. He says to the church in verse 2, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. All right, now, That would, some people would say, well, what's gentle about that? We can't remove somebody from our midst because that wouldn't be being gentle and kind and humble. 
Well, Paul is doing this. And Paul knows about gentleness and humility. But he's saying, you've become arrogant. You didn't mourn. This sin should have grieved you. And you didn't remove the one from your midst because he didn't repent. They, sh- they should have removed him. Verse 3. For on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this sin as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled together, and I with you in spirit, means physically he won't be there, but he'll be upholding them in prayer, and, and his spirit is with them. With the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That means for his death, because he's non-repentant. He's a problem in the church. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, uh, the end of his fleshly life, but his spiritual life, because he's a Christian, which also means Christians can do about any sin any, any unbeliever can, will be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Paul says, there's something that is, that is permeating the house of God, and it's sin. You must remove it because it will affect everything. This is the Father's house. These are the Father's people. It's important. Verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, uh, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean, so they had taken this wrongly, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Paul said, you got it wrong. I didn't say don't associate with the worldly people. I didn't say don't associate with the unsaved. But actually, he says in verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, like this man in sin, if he is an immoral person or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. This man, who's in your church that claims to be a Christian, he should be the focus of any judgment by the church. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? In other words, the unsaved. The answer is nothing. Do you not judge those who are within the church? Well, apparently they're not right now, but they sure are going to. But those who are outside aren't Christians. God judges. And then he quotes from an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy, and he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, you could read that and say, well, Paul, you're not just being perfectly gentle, but his heart is gentle, and his heart is right, and sometimes when there's sin, something needs to be done that might be a little tough to do and isn't going to look so, so gentle. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, uh, just like we did with Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are of good courage, Paul says, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. I'm sorry, that's a good verse, but it's not the one I wanted. 2 Corinthians 2.8, we do prefer that. Here we go, 2 Corinthians 2.8. I want you to see the other side of Paul. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Now there was another person that they disciplined that caused them sorrow, and he says, I want you to reaffirm your love for him. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. 
So on the contrary, he says in verse 7, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Reaffirm your love for him. So he's tough when he needs to be, and he's very gentle when he needs to be, and he's calling other people to be gentle as well. We can be firm without giving up our humility. Like when we're dealing with demons, I've heard people get really angry at demons and yell at them and scream at them like they had power, you know. You don't have to do that. They're already, they've already uh, signed up with the losing side. You just simply speak the power of God against them. And you don't have to get upset about it. You don't have to get mad about it. It is the humble, not the arrogant, who will inherit the earth. That goes against what the world teaches. The world says that the spoil goes to the victor. That means the most powerful, the most ruthless, the one who dominates others for whatever reason. In our world, the gentle are not credited with the ability to rule or to be able to hold diverse people groups together, or to, or to mount a conquest over the enemy. But that's because people in the world always forget what we have that they don't. And that is God and his power. Here is the issue. Do we serve the greatest and most powerful God in existence, or do we not? Is our God in control, or is he not? Is there anything that our God fears? Is there anything that our God cannot handle? No, no. So when you have the God we have, there is really no reason to lose control and not be gentle in what you're doing, even though it sounds like it's not gentle. When you sit at the negotiating table with your enemies, like the wicked or your own sin or my own sin, threats against you or opposition, uh, do, you, do you have to fear or lose your cool? The answer is no. And you know why uh, the Palestinians are always screaming and that's all we hear about. And the Jews, we don't hardly hear anything about them uh, today. And that's because the one who's the loudest has the least power. And that's why they're always screaming and you don't hear anything out of the Jews. And if you're screaming, it would mean you don't have the power that you say you do. It is because you have the, the, the power of God in your life that you can be gentle and compassionate where you can be and firm when you have to be. We will one day inherit and inhabit, it and inhabit the earth because our Jesus will defeat wickedness and the most powerful of this earth, and he will give it to us. No worries on our part. And then in verse 6, those who crave and yearn for righteousness will one day be satisfied with righteousness. I don't know about you, but it's uh, difficult and getting more difficult to look around this world today and see all the garbage that's going on, all the wickedness, decisions being made that are absolutely unrighteous and unfathomable to us, and, and we just long to be done with it. We long to be in a place where there's righteousness. We long for the kingdom of God. And Jesus is outlining what true believers, who are thus members of the kingdom of God, will receive uh, partially now and fully in the kingdom. The verbs here are future. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be one day satisfied. Not in this earth, because we're surrounded with all kinds of unrighteousness. And that's because we don't only want ourselves to be righteous, we want others to be righteous as well. So we can all be surrounded by righteousness. We want the government to make righteous decisions. We want our neighbors to be righteous. We want to be righteous. 
So here's the promise that God will not leave someone destitute of righteousness for the rest of existence. Jesus is using hunger and thirst as figures of speech, literally a metonymy, the figure of metonymy, the subject for the attribute. Hunger in a person can be intensive, and that need or that desire for food uh, to get it satisfied from hunger pains is intense. Thirst is also a desire for that which the body needs on a regular basis. It can create a desire that nags at a person. Water will satisfy the need to take it away. Jesus uses physically familiar pains like hunger and thirst and, and longings for physical food and water uh, to show you what can happen to the soul in its intense desire and its need for spiritual food. Do you need spiritual food? Is it something that you crave? I want to go to 1 Timothy 4 and verse 6 where it says this. Uh, of course, Paul is talking to Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus, and he says this in terms of talking about what people need, in pointing out these things to the brethren or to the saved, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith. Do you ever think of yourself as being a little malnourished in the words of faith? Do you ever think that I'm not getting enough of God's word? Do I have the nourishment of God's word that I need? This, this literally says, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and on the sound doctrine which you have been following, Timothy. That's something that you choose to do. I could pray, God, give us all a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And he might do some things like let a few worse things happen in the world so we really get tired of it. But what really needs to happen is you and I need to be people that say, I am thirsting for God's righteousness. I am starving for it. I can't get enough of it. I want to be nourished on the word of God. The fact that we need spiritual food is different than desiring than desiring spiritual food. Some Christians are spiritually malnourished and starving. This is about a personal spiritual desire as well as a desire for the community at large to be spiritually nourished and then righteous. All the churches in Smith Center couldn't hold the population of Smith County if everybody came to church. Years ago, I figured out that if every church in town uh, had, had so many people, you could have 500 people in every church in town. And of course, look around, that, that's not happening. There are people out there starved spiritually. This is about a personal spiritual desire and one that desi is desirous for the community. The first thing that we are confronted with is, am I personally famished? And ravenous for the word of God where I find God's righteousness? Is that true of me? Do we have a desire to see God's standards, his commandments, his will accomplished in our own lives and then in the lives of everyone around us when it comes to God's righteousness? We say things the, world's don't, the world doesn't understand. We say homosexuality is a sin. They say, well, you're homophobic. I said, no, didn't say that. I don't know what the fear, I don't know where they're getting the fear anyway. Phobos is a fear. What are you talking about? Uh, the only thing I'm afraid for them is if they don't know Jesus as their Savior, they're not going to make it to heaven. But that's true of every, every person that's sinning and doesn't know Jesus. It's not that I have hatred for them. I don't have a fear of them. I want to, I want to, to love them and bring them into the kingdom. Do I have a driving need in the area of, of spiritual appetites for the righteousness of God? 
Do I live that way? Do I ever divide my appetite for spiritual things between God and other so-called righteous things of the world? Do I see a difference between God's righteousness and so-called righteousness of false religions? Can my hunger for righteousness be measured? Do I know what is right and what is wrong and cling to the right? Am I living it? Is it my desire? No. Is it my passion to see it in others as well? First in myself. What we long for in the world and what we work for in the world is something this present world will not accept. Will not accept. It is the deluding influence that keeps them from the truth. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 7. Here's what's happening. Then the lawless one will come. He's talking about the Antichrist. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the, present, uh, by the appearance of his coming. That is the one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan with all the power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. We never, we never take pleasure in wickedness. We never take pleasure in unrighteousness, but the world does every day. What we are looking for and longing for will arrive in the kingdom of Christ in the millennium. This is what is meant by Jesus ruling them with a rod of iron. He will make sure it is a righteous kingdom. The Lord, our righteousness, will rule in complete righteousness in his kingdom. In the new heavens and the new earth, so I'm jumping from the kingdom to the final state. There will be no unrighteousness ever again for all of eternity. Man, we long for that. We'd love to have that happen right now. So what, the, so what those who hunger and thirst for in the area of righteousness will one day be given to them and they will finally be satisfied. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about us. One day we'll be satisfied. That hunger and that thirst will, will not be there anymore. We will find true righteousness and we will be satisfied with it. Can you imagine a time when our righteous souls will no longer take issue with the world because the world is conforming to the righteousness of God? What a glorious time. What a glorious day. That will be. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7. God says uh, through Peter, and, and if he, that is God, rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Lot felt this very way. Lot was a man, even though we look down on him for his choices, 
The Bible says Lot was a man who was hungry and thirsty for righteousness, and he lived in the midst of a, of a very sinful society in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says every day his soul was tormented by all the unrighteousness. Does that sound like us? The day is coming when we will enjoy complete righteousness among people, and it will only happen by the power of God. Let me run through these applications, and then we'll be done. Number one, we can be gentle because we serve the lion and the lamb. He is in control, so I don't have to be. Secondly, we long for our world to adopt the righteous values of the kingdom. We are hungry for it. We are thirsting for it. It is not man's righteousness, number three, but God's that we hunger and thirst for. And finally, righteous should start with me first. And I have to ask myself, am I dedicated to it first? Am I judging a world that secretly I am living just like them? Those things should, shouldn't be among us. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we come before you and we seek your help. We know that you will not force us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. You won't force us to be gentle and humble of spirit. But if we make that choice and decide that's what we're going to do and ask for your help, you will help us. You will show up and you'll be there for us. And Father, we are so hungry for our world to be righteous and we see it getting more wicked and, and more unrighteous every day. Our hearts are tormented within us by what we see. And it does make us look forward to that day when you will be in charge and righteousness will reign and wickedness will not. In the meantime, help us to be people who've made choices that live righteously as best we can with your help so that the world might see there really is a better way. And I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.